This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I will be speaking to you tonight about St. Thomas Aquinas on the question whether God exists. Now, to avoid keeping you all in suspense, I'll cut right to the chase. His answer is yes, <laughs> but I suspect you already knew that. If I were to leave the answer there, not only would this likely be the shortest talk in the history of the Thomistic Institute, but the heart of the question would remain unanswered. Because to pose a question such as this isn't simply to ask a factual point, such as, is it raining right now? Or do you like tacos? With these sorts of queries, the, uh, the, the questioner tends to be satisfied with a simple yes or no answer. By contrast, when someone asks whether God exists, something more is at stake in the asking. What the questioner really wants to know is, can you provide evidence that, in fact, God exists? Aquinas himself recognizes the deeper point of the question, which is clear from his work the Summa Theologiae, in which he offers his famous five ways of proving God's existence, precisely in answer to the question, whether God exists, which is the title of that very article. And so I have a handout for you um, with a number of texts. I always like to go back to Aquinas and then leave you with a record so you can see uh, what he says and where. Don't worry about the Latin if you're not a Latinist, but if you wanted to and you know some Latin, you can see uh, the translations are mine, and those who are Latinists, you can point out any errors along the way. So the task of providing an evidentiary answer to this question, that might seem challenging enough, but the task is more challenging still if we consider that the very posing of the question is problematic. What exactly is it whose existence we're trying to prove? Aquinas himself frequently reminds us that in this lifetime, we do not, indeed we cannot, know God's essence or nature. Or to put this in other terms, we don't know what God is. So the problem arises, how can we even begin to try to prove the existence of God when we don't know what it is that we're trying to prove this about? The task seems taller than trying to find the proverbial needle in a haystack. In that case, you at least know what it is that you're trying to find. In this case, we're trying to find whether something I know not what exists at all and in the haystack as big as reality itself. What I wish to do tonight is examine how Aquinas thinks we can meaningfully answer the question whether God exists. So rather than looking at any one of his arguments, I will discuss instead the presuppositions and general approach that all of his arguments entail. And to that end, my talk is going to have three parts outlined for you at the top of my handout. In the first part, I'm going to consider why Aquinas thinks that we can meaningfully ask the question whether God exists, even though we don't know what God is. In the second part, I'll show how Aquinas thinks we can attempt to answer the question in a meaningful way. This will entail a careful consideration of what exactly he is trying to prove. Finally, in the third part of my talk, I will clarify what he is not trying to prove. In that way, 
providing a better sense of the project. So, to the first part. The earliest biographies of Aquinas recount that in his youth he was already driven by questions regarding the divine. At the tender age of five, he was entered into the Benedictine monastery of Monte Cassino, where he began his studies. And there, we're told, he repeatedly asked his masters the same question. What is God? Notice that whether God exists was not a question for the young Thomas, which makes sense if we consider that from birth he was steeped in a life of Christian faith. So already believing that God exists, he wanted to know more. He wanted to know what precisely it was that he was believing in. It's important to note that this question wasn't motivated by doubt, but rather it was a question posed seeking clarification. In other words, already at this young age, Aquinas was exemplifying the Augustinian notion of faith seeking understanding. And it's also in this Augustinian spirit that when writing the Summa Theologiae later in life, Aquinas would turn his attention to that other question, whether God exists, and in answer to it, offer his students five ways of proving God's existence. Again, not because he had doubts about God's existence, but because he wished to know, through rational consideration, what he already accepted on faith. Now, Aquinas is quite clear that not everything accepted on faith can be proven demonstratively. For example, the Christian doctrine of the Trinity or the incarnation of Christ. These truths, he explains, are articles of faith and can be accepted on faith alone. But he contends that there are other truths accepted on faith that can also be proven in which case the believer is no longer, no longer simply a believer as to that fact, once it had been proven, but has certainty of knowledge. Aquinas terms such truths preambles to the articles of faith. These are truths that faith presupposes, that can indeed be accepted on faith, but that can also be proven philosophically. And you can see him talking about these preambles in text number two on your handout. And, and, and you don't have to always look at it there, but just so you know, as a frame of reference, there are some points where I'll say, let's look at these lines, but that'll come later. These two questions that I've touched upon, namely, does God exist and what is God, are for Aquinas particular instances of fundamental types of questions asked in any scientific investigation following the Aristotelian logical methodology that he employs. Aristotle presents four of these questions in his posterior analytics, and I list them to, for you on figure one. Um, on some of the handouts, I think the toners start to run out on the printer, so apologies, it's, some of the boxes and shading are missing. But the first of these questions is, is it? In other words, does it exist? The second is, what is it? The third question, is it a fact that it is such? And the fourth, why is it such? To get a sense of these four questions, let's consider the nature of whales. As I like to bring up to my students, one activity that whales engage in is that they nurse their young. 
that might be surprising to someone unschooled on their nature who thinks that a whale is a fish. But perhaps one day such a person visits SeaWorld and sees firsthand a whale nursing her calf. The person now knows the fact of the matter. Whales nurse their young, an answer to the third of the four Aristotelian questions. But why? As it turns out, this activity isn't one that's practiced by fish. By observing the whale's behavior, the person can discern that it in fact has a non-fish nature and now can investigate further the why, the fourth of these questions. If the person knows some basic zoology, he might realize that they do so because they are mammals. In answering this question, the person begins to know better what the whale is, the second of the four questions. And I'm walking us through all this because we want to notice that to be able to answer any of these three questions, the last three questions, the person needs to know that whales exist. That's the answer to the first of the four questions. But how does he know that? Observation is certainly one avenue. People can see whales either at sea, at SeaWorld, or at sea. But the matter is more complex for the investigation of things that we haven't yet observed or moreover can't observe. To answer the is it question about these things, we instead need to prove that they exist. Again, how? Following Aristotle, Aquinas acknowledges a conundrum. On the one hand, it seems that to discover what something is, you need to know that it is. But on the other hand, it seems that you need to know what something is if you're going to try to prove that it is. If I were to ask you, hey, do you know if the Campophilus principalis exists? Odds are that you would reply, what's that? Unless that is you're an ornithologist or an avid bird watcher, in which case you might know that I'm talking about the ivory-billed woodpecker, a species of bird considered critically endangered and, and maybe extinct since it hasn't been observed in decades. And if you do know that much, at least that it's a bird, you know at least something about what it is that we're talking about and then could begin an investigation into whether it exists. And the reason you could do that much, even without being a trained ornithologist, is that you've encountered birds and have a general understanding of what they are. You've seen them and you've heard them. As the medievals like to say, there's nothing in the intellect that was not first in the senses. What they meant by that isn't that the only things we can know about are things we've sensed, but rather that the senses are the gateway for our knowledge. Following Aristotle, they held that the mind by nature is a blank slate on which knowledge is written through sensory experience. And Aquinas tells us on a number of occasions that the proper object of the human intellect is the quiddity, fancy Latinate term, quiditas, meaning the whatness of the thing. In other words, it's nature. So the proper object of the human intellect is the quiddity or nature of a sensible thing, something that can be grasped by the senses. And you can see I'm alluding to that in text number three on the handout. So that's all well and good for establishing what a woodpecker is and whether it exists. But what about God? For Christians, at least, and many other believers, 
God is believed to be an immaterial being and as such can't be experienced in a sensory way. Moreover, God is traditionally identified as an infinite being and as such he transcends our finite intellects and can never be comprehended. We might wonder whether such descriptors tell us at least to a minimal degree what God is, kind of like saying the woodpecker is an animal or a body. But Aquinas says no. Instead, these sort of descriptions that I've used, immaterial, infinite, indicate what God is not. To speak of a being as immaterial is to say that it's not material. To speak of it as infinite is to say that it's not finite. In using these terms, we're simply negating the notions of materiality and finitude that we acquire first through sensation. So Aquinas concludes again, that in this lifetime at least, we can't know God's essence or nature, which is to say that we can't know what he is. And so we return to the question I raised at the outset of my talk in the context of this philosophical conundrum that I illustrate visually for you in figure two. To know that something is, you need to know what it is. But to know what something is, you need to know that it is. And round and round we seem to go. How do we break out of this seemingly vicious circle? It would help to note first that this problem isn't unique to the investigation of the divine and immaterial. We find the same problem arising at times in the study of nature. Consider that according to some physicists today, the sort of matter that can be observed and studied seems to account for about only 15% of the matter in the universe, and only 73% of the universe's total mass energy density. So the question then becomes, what accounts for the rest? And physicists have hypothesized, at least some of them, a sort of dark matter, which they call such because it has thus far been undetectable. Notice that the proponents of this account don't know what dark matter is, but surely they at least know what they mean by the term, or else they wouldn't be able to talk about it. Implicitly, these scientists are drawing on a distinction between what Aquinas and other scholastic thinkers refer to as the quid rei, or whatness of a thing, which is its nature, versus the quid nominis, or the whatness of a term. In other words, what some word that we use is intended to signify or mean. And I visually present this in figure three. What physicists term dark matter is the aforementioned stuff whose nature, or quid rei, scientists hope to discern one day. Here then we see a way out of the seemingly vicious circle depicted in figure two. To prove that something is, you need to know what it is, but that doesn't mean that you need to know what its nature or essence is. According to Aquinas, it's sufficient simply to know what we mean by the term. Thus, to prove that a type of thing exists, we can simply provide what he refers to as a nominal definition, a definition of the name of the word rather than of the thing. So a nominal definition of what we're looking for rather than that more robust definition of the very nature of the thing. And you can see him alluding to this in text four. And the same is the case with our consideration of God. As he tells us, this is text five, you're on page five and you want to look at it, line 39. 
Aquinas says, as regards God, we cannot know whether he exists unless we somehow know about him what he is, at least in some confused way. So we can find some sort of meaning to our word based on a confused understanding, but it can't be a misleading understanding. The question next is, how do we form the right sort of confused understanding to provide us with a sufficient nominal definition of God such that we're searching for the right thing in trying to prove his existence? There are a lot of different conceptions of God across time, culture, and various religions. Idolaters of old worshipped statues. The Greeks were polytheists whose gods were considered corporeal beings. Christians are monotheists, but Trinitarian, leading fellow monotheistic Muslims to accuse them of being polytheists. Even atheists have their implicit preconceptions about what it is that they're rejecting. And those preconceptions may not line up with the understanding of those whom they're trying to refute. So to answer the question of whether God exists, we need to be clear about what we mean by the word God. Only once we have a sufficient nominal definition of this term and know what we mean by it, can we make a satisfactory attempt to prove that what it signifies in fact exists. So I'll turn to the second part of my talk now, what Aquinas is trying to prove. Given his position that we can't know the quid rei of God, the whatness of his nature, in his view, any argument for God's existence that attempts to prove it, to proceed from what God is in himself, or what we might suppose he is, is problematic. In other words, we can't start saying, oh, this is what his nature probably is. Let's prove that that nature exists. And that's why he rejects St. Anselm's so-called ontological argument, which seeks to prove the existence of God, considering his nature as something than which nothing greater can be thought. Similarly, he would have disagreed with the later Duns Scotus's effort to prove the existence of God as a being that is infinite in his nature. Both of those approaches are trying to say, this is God's nature in some way, and we're going to prove that that being exists. Now, let's be clear. Aquinas wouldn't deny that these attributes identified by Anselm and Scotus turn out to be accurate when said of God. What he's denying is that we can know or presume them at the outset of offering a proof for God's existence. Moreover, neither does Aquinas turn to revelation for his nominal definition of God, even though he accepts on faith what revelation teaches about God. Such an argument from Revelation, to give a philosophical proof, would be circular, trying to prove God's existence based upon the authority of the word of a God whose existence you're trying to prove. So we can't go that route. Instead, Aquinas turns to the scientific methodology laid out by Aristotle in his posterior analytics for proving that something exists. According to Aristotle, Science entails demonstrative knowledge. So what's that? Well, that's knowledge of some conclusion that is syllogistically de deduced, and it, the conclusion entails certitude, 
Why? Well, based upon the truth, necessity, and universality of its premises, as well as the validity of the argument form. Don't worry, you don't need to memorize all that. Suffice it to say, Aristotle identifies two sorts of demonstrations. One sort deduces not only that something is the case, not only the fact of the matter, but more importantly, also reveals why it is so. As the medievals term it, this is a so-called propter quid demonstration. And as Aquinas explains, this is text six, this sort of argument offers a causal explanation of the fact that's deduced. So let's make it a little more down to earth. Consider my earlier syllogistic example regarding whales, which I present for you formally in figure four. Earlier we reasoned all mammals nurse their young. We reasoned implicitly, all mammals nurse their young. All whales are mammals. All whales, therefore, nurse their young. Now, I'm not going to overload you with all the details of Aristotelian logic, but I will point out this much. The term mammal that I have highlighted in this argument is what logicians call the middle term, and it shows the logical connection between the subject of the conclusion, in this example, the term whales, and the predicate of the conclusion, in this example, the phrase nurse their young. In a so-called propter quid demonstration, the middle term is a cause that accounts for why the conclusion is true. To put this into more ordinary language, in response to the question, why is it that whales nurse their young? The answer would be because, notice the word cause built into because, because they are mammals. It is the mammalian nature of whales that provides the causal account that explains why this conclusion is true. But here's the problem. Sometimes, as we've seen, we don't know the nature of the subject that we're investigating. In these cases, we can't offer a propter quid demonstration about it, a causal demonstration, whether that subject is dark matter or God himself. Fortunately, Aristotle offers another way of proceeding in the investigation of such things. As Aquinas explains again in text six, when an effect is better known to us than the cause, we can proceed in the inverse manner of a propter quid argument, this time starting with some effect and reasoning back to the cause in what the medievals called a quia demonstration. And again, to bring this down to earth and make it more concrete, consider the following example. This is my own, not Aquinas's. You've had a hard day at work and could really go for a refreshing beer. A friend of yours hands you a bottle of a label you've never heard of before, O'Doul's. You find it refreshing enough, but as you finish your second one, you notice that it isn't taking the edge off from your day. Suddenly it dawns on you, this isn't really beer at all. Before you even look at the label to confirm your suspicions, you reason as follows, illustrated in figure four, all non-intoxicating beer is non-alcoholic. Odul's is non-intoxicating beer, therefore all Odul's is non-alcoholic. In this example, you would again be reasoning in a deductive manner, but this time the highlighted middle term is not a cause, but rather an effect that reveals the truth of a conclusion. 
As Aristotle indicates, with a clear demonstration such as this, we again have certitude that the conclusion is true, but unlike with a proper quid demonstration, this time we merely know that that it is true and not why, because we don't know the cause of its truth. So in my example, when you reach the conclusion that oduls must be non-alcoholic, you're left to wonder, why for the love of God would anyone brew non-alcoholic beer? <laughs> now, of course, there are explanations to tell us why, but my point is these explanations are not brought out in the premises of the argument. So how is any of this relevant for our question of whether God exists? Well, Aquinas tells us how in text six at line nine, he says, because from any effect, it's possible to demonstrate the existence of its proper cause. As he explains, the reason that an effect depends upon a cause, oh, the reason is that an effect depends upon a cause. Philosophers term what I've just described, the so-called principle of causality, namely that every effect, precisely in as much as it is an effect, depends upon its cause. This is the heart of causal relations. So in that moment of dependence, it's clear that if something exists as an effect, depending on something else in some respect, it must have a cause and that cause must also exist. As an example of such an inference, consider that we suddenly hear a knocking at the door. We know that that sound isn't sufficient to account for itself, so there must be a cause to account for it. If the knocking exists, we can reason in a quia manner, for want of a better term, that a door knocker must exist. But notice the limitations. As the, aging myself here, but as the 1980s pop group Men at Work once sang, who can it be knocking at my door? That we can't figure out by simply reasoning from effect to cause. But even though the effect can't reveal who precisely or even what the cause is in its nature, it at least reveals that there is a cause, that the cause exists. Now, whether <laughs> physicists today realize it or not, it's this sort of queer line of reasoning that they're employing in investigations like the search for dark matter. From various astrophysical observations, such as gravitational effects that can't be explained by accepted theories of gravity, they infer that there must exist a cause, some sort of matter that can't be detected, at least presently, that must exist. Do they know from these effects what dark matter is? No. And Aquinas contends that in a similar way, even though we don't know God's nature, it's possible for us to reason in a quia manner from the existence of various effects back to the existence of a cause that we call God. And you can see that illustrated in figure five. And this is the methodology he employs uh, in each of the five ways. He starts with a given effect, such as motion, and argues back to the existence of a first cause in some respect, such as an unmoved first mover. And as he brings out in text seven, to prove the existence of a cause that is truly first and uncaused is to prove the existence of something that transcends all things and in that respect is unlike them. And here we find an answer to our earlier question regarding 
the problem of defining what God is. As I've noted, Aquinas thinks it's not possible for us to discern the whatness of God's very nature, but we can at least know what we mean by the term we're employing. He explains to us in text 8 that whatever words we use to describe God, they're all taken from his effects in some way. Later on, in question 13 of the first part of the Summa, when Aquinas considers how we can have meaningful language about a transcendent God, he clarifies further what is meant by the very name God. As he explains, even though we don't know God's nature, we can still use this name God to signify that nature. And if we're going to use the word at all, we at least need to know what we mean by it for us to be on the same page if we're to talk about God at all, much less offer a proof of his existence. And Aquinas contends that what we should intend to signify in using this word God is something that is, it's highlighted in text 9 at line 15, something that is above all existing things, that is the principle, meaning cause, of all existing things, and removed from all existing things. For this, he contends, quote, is what those who use the name God intend to signify. So it's the existence of this sort of being that he's trying to prove in each and every one of his arguments for the existence of God. So now that we have, I hope, a sense of what Aquinas is trying to do, a sense of what he's trying to prove, to avoid misunderstanding his project, we next need to get a better sense of the project by considering what he's not trying to prove. So I turn to the third part of my talk. You're probably getting a sense that as straightforward as Aquinas' arguments for God's existence may at first seem to be, there's in fact a lot going on behind the scenes. People who are unfamiliar with his methodology can easily misread these proofs. On the one hand, leading the sympathetic reader to assent to a conclusion that Aquinas himself doesn't reach, and on the other hand, leading the avowed atheist to reject an argument that Aquinas never made. There are two common mistakes that people understandably make when reading arguments such as the five ways. One is the assumption that Aquinas intends in these arguments to prove the existence of God. The other is the assumption that he intends to prove the existence of God. To put that less cryptically, one mistake is mistaking the subject that the argument is about, namely God. So one mistake is say, hey, this is argument about God. And the other is mistaking what is being attributed to that subject, namely his existence. In other words, we need to get further clear on what God means, what Aquinas means by God, and what exactly he's trying to prove. So let's start with the first of these two mistaken assumptions, and hopefully it'll become clear what I'm getting at. When I say that it's a mistake to read Aquinas as attempting to prove the existence of God in arguments like his five ways, what I have in mind is the common assumption that he's trying to prove that there exists an individual entity who goes by the name of God, as though that name were a proper name like Kevin or Matthias. 
proper names signify an individual being as such, as an individual. And they're, in Aquinas' terms, incommunicable. They can't be said of any other individual except maybe metaphorically. But Aquinas is clear that the name God is not a proper name. It's not the proper name of God taken as an individual. And as a sidebar, I'd say he notes that if there were such a thing, well, perhaps the one possibility he suggests might be the tetragrammaton of the Hebrews. And guess what he tells us? That's unpronounceable. <laughs> that, though, would be said of God and God alone, that individual. But the name God, by contrast, is what Aquinas terms an appellative name. So what's that? Well, we would call that a common noun, like, more like the names human and animal, which can be said of more than one thing. In text 10, Aquinas points out that, like other common nouns, the name God is intended to signify not an individual, but a certain kind of nature, namely the divine nature. So to call something God or a God is to say that that thing, in Aquinas' view, is a haver of divinity, a haver of the divine nature, something that has that nature. Granted, we've seen, we don't know that nature, but it's still coherent to give a name for it that, as I've discussed, Aquinas says, we take from his effects, just as a physicist gives a name dark matter to dark matter. And he clarifies in text 11 that it's precisely because this name, word, God, is a common noun that for the Christians, it can be commonly said of each of the three persons of the Trinity in a meaningful way. Each is a haver of divinity. So the Father can be called God, and so can the Son and the Holy Spirit. But the Son can't be called the Father, and the Holy Spirit can't be called the Son. Those are not common names. Moreover, Aquinas explains the fact that the name God is a common name is the reason why polytheists can according to what he describes as a mistaken opinion, speak of gods in the plural, and it's why the monotheist can meaningfully enter into conversation with the polytheist to point out their error. In short, this semantic consideration of what the term God signifies reveals that Aquinas is, excuse me, uh, reveals that Aquinas's intention in arguments like the five ways, is not to conclude to the existence of the one true God, at least not immediately. And this reading is further confirmed by a consideration of his logical methodology employed in these arguments. Because following Aristotle, he holds that there's no scientific knowledge of singulars as such. Science is concerned with universals. There's a science of anthropology that studies humans. There's a science of gradulin. So he tells us in text 13 that there could be no demonstrations, in other words, logical proofs of singulars as singulars, individuals as individuals. So we can't offer a demonstration that an individual, such as Kevin Cooper, exists. The best we can do is point at him. There he is. Sorry to put that 
fruit. By contrast, we can offer demonstrations that a certain kind of thing, such as humans, exist by proving that there is something out there with a human nature. The point I'm getting at is that unlike a Duns Scotus, who attempts to offer a single knockdown argument for the existence of the individual one true God, Aquinas takes a different approach in his arguments. His approach follows his Aristotelian methodology, and so he tries to prove that there exists some being that has the divine nature, some haver of divinity. For this reason, if we look at his five ways, we find that none of them explicitly concludes to the existence of only one God. Although perhaps the fourth way implies that there is only one. Now to be clear, as I've already noted, Aquinas does in fact hold that there can be only one haver of divinity, properly speaking. But that fact is not explicitly signified by the common name God. For Aquinas, the unicity of God, the oneness of God, that there's only one, is a conclusion that can be reached only after the existence of a God has been proven, namely as a sort of corollary that follows from these arguments. So it's noteworthy that in the first part of the Summa Theologiae, and I provide you with a little table of contents of the first 25 questions in figure six, but again, I think the toner got lost, and so uh, unfortunately the ones that I tried to highlight with white font got <laughs> get lost, uh, but those are, does God exist? And you know, that God is only one. It's not until question 11 that Aquinas establishes God's unicity. Namely, nine questions after the article in which he presents the five ways proving that there is a God. So, in summary, the immediate conclusion of these arguments isn't to the existence of an individual entity whose proper name is God, but rather that there exists at least one being with a kind of nature, namely divine, that corresponds to what Aquinas thinks the name God signifies, namely something whose nature is such that it can be, and in fact is, a first uncaused cause that is so removed from its effects that it transcends them. But that said, for these arguments to fully cash out as genuine proofs for the existence of the one true God, they need to conclude to the sort of first cause of which there in principle can be only one. And again, that's what Aquinas proceeds to show in the questions and articles that follow the five ways. Now you'll also recall that I made the provocative claim that none of Aquinas' arguments conclude to the existence of God, and this time emphasis on the word existence. So again, what do I mean by that? Well, here again, we need to step back to consider what it is precisely that's being proven in a logical argument. Properly speaking, it's not a thing that's proven, nor any of its attributes. To illustrate, consider again my whale syllogism offered on page six in figure four. We wouldn't say to somebody, prove whales. We wouldn't say, prove nurse their young. 
What we would say is prove that whales nurse their young. In short, in a proof or demonstration, what is properly sought is evidence that some statement is true. Some proposition that asserts something about some subject. And the same is the case for any demonstration one would attempt to make about God. Whatever it is that Aquinas tries to prove about him when he offers an argument, it's about the truth of some statement concerning God. For example, that God is good. Is this true? That God is infinite, and so forth. And similarly, regarding God's existence, Aquinas doesn't say, I'm going to prove God's existence. Rather, what he tells us he attempts to prove is the truth of this proposition, that God exists. So we find that the conventional translation of Aquinas' words leading up to the five ways is inaccurate. For example, in the Benzinger edition that uh, English readers commonly turn to, we find the translation, quote, the existence of God can be proven in five ways. But Aquinas here does not use the words existentia dei, existence of God. If you want to look at the Latin, you can look it on page one, line one of the first text. He doesn't say existentia dei, existence of God. What he says is deum esse in Latin. Now don't panic, I'm not going to bore you with a Latin lesson other than to clarify that this phrase deum esse is an instance of a grammatical construction known as the accusative infinitive. What's that used for? To indicate an indirect statement, the sort of that statement I was talking about a moment ago. So a more accurate translation of what Aquinas uh, says prior to presenting his five ways is, as I have it, quote, it can be proven in five ways that God exists. This assertion can be proven to be true. To be even more precise, I should note that Aquinas doesn't use the verb to exist at all which in Latin is existere. Instead, he uses the verb esse, which is better translated as the English infinitive to be. So with that in mind, the lines leading into the five way most accurately read, it can be proven in five ways that God is. Now at this point, you're probably thinking, geez, this guy's just being a finicky translator here and making a <laughs> distinction without a difference. Surely the verb to be is a synonym for the verb to exist. Think of Hamlet famously asking about the possibility of his continued existence to be or not to be. That is the question. Or think of Descartes for whom there was no question when he famously pronounced his existence to both himself and the world saying, I think, therefore I am. But we need to be careful here because for both the English verb to be and the Latin essay that it translates, the existence of a thing is not always what is signified by the word. As Bill Clinton famously said, it all depends on what your definition of is is. <laughs> Consider the following example. 
you meet someone who, having just learned about the Danish prince, asks you, hey, when did Hamlet live? Knowing your Shakespeare, you're, you reply, oh, haven't you heard? Hamlet is a fictional character. Hearing this news, the person might react with surprise, asking, is he? And without missing a beat, you reply, he is. Now, in saying this, surely you wouldn't mean that Hamlet exists because you just told the person that he's fictional. But you said he is. What's going on here? Aquinas offers some clarification. On a number of occasions, he tells us that the verb to be can be said in many ways. And I give one example with text 14, where he enumerates three ways in which the verb to be can be used in Latin, and so too, it turns out, in English. And in fact, in Greek, and these are, tend to be a common way uh, that to be is used in Indo-European languages, a number of them. One way the verb to be is used is for explaining, Aquinas says, what a thing is, which concerns the thing's essence. The what it is of the thing, the what it is to be this. The second way he outlines is that existential sense of to be used by both Hamlet and Descartes, meaning to exist. But a third way that is common, that the verb to be is commonly used, is, is what both grammarians and logicians call a copula. When forms of the word to be join together a subject and predicate in a statement, in a proposition. And this is how the word is functions in the statement. Hamlet is a fictional character. Is combines the notions of Hamlet and fictional character. It's not asserting that Hamlet exists. It's combining Hamlet and fictional character together indicate that they rightly belong together. And so Aquinas tells us that when is is used as a copula, what it signifies is that the asserted proposition is true. So we've got this existential sense of to be and this truth sense of to be. And similarly, in your reply to the question, is he fictional? The is in your answer, he is, also signifies that what was said is true, but this time it signified that what's true is the prior statement made about Hamlet. It's like saying, yes, what I just said is correct. And you can see Aquinas talking about that in text 15. Okay, so I know this might not be the most thrilling thing. Why am I going through this semantic analysis when considering Aquinas' arguments for the existence of God? Surely when he says he intends to prove that God is, the is signifies existence. Isn't that what we're trying to do? Prove that God exists, right? But there's a problem here. It turns out that the God whose existence Aquinas is trying to prove is a being whose nature is identical with his very existence. God is beingness itself. In short, his whatness is his isness. And so an objection notes in text 16, there's an objection brought up that Aquinas responds to. The objection is that Wait, you, you claim that you can demonstrate, you can prove definitively that God exists? Well, if you do that, then you're also claiming to prove what God is, because what God is, is his existence. But recall, in this lifetime, we can't know what God is. So the objection goes, it seems that it's impossible to know by means of the certitude of the demonstration 
that God is. You can only accept that on faith. In response to this concern, Aquinas grants that we can neither prove nor know the is of God that is his existence. But he reassures us that when we're attempting to demonstrate that God is, we aren't employing the existential sense of the word to be. It can be surprising at first to read this, but it says no. He contends it's that copulative sense according to which the term is signifies that a proposition is true. Okay, so this is rather abstract, somewhat obscure. So let me lay out the implications in simpler terms. What Aquinas is reminding us is that we don't have a firsthand experience of God or of his existence, unlike your experience of me right now. You can rightfully judge of me that Greg Doolin exists. Moreover, he exists as a human. Here, we're asserting something experienced about an individual. But as I've noted, you can't offer a philosophical demonstration that an individual such as me exists. You can point to him. By contrast, as I've also noted, Aquinas holds that it is possible to prove that something with a given kind of nature exists. How? Well, again, by reasoning from effect back to cause in a quia demonstration. So consider my earlier example of the ivory-billed woodpecker, which currently isn't observed. If we were presented with sufficient evidence of the effects of such woodpecker that you did observe, namely observe the effects, for example, you knew their distinctive bird call and you heard it, and you know their distinctive nest structures, and you discover some recently built distinctive wood, ivory-billed woodpecker nests, then you would be justified in inferring their existence. But notice, you wouldn't conclude that this individual woodpecker exists, for example, Woody, but rather that there exists some ivory-billed woodpecker, at least one. You would know of their existence, but not directly. The conclusion an ivory-billed woodpecker is, in fact, is really a kind of shorthand referencing the truth of the following proposition. Something is an ivory-billed woodpecker. And in this proposition as well, the is doesn't signify that a given individual exists, but rather that it is true to combine the notion of something and the notion of ivory-billed woodpecker so that what the proposition is really telling us is that something has the nature of an ivory-billed woodpecker. But of course, for that something to have that nature, it has to exist. Notice that the existence isn't directly asserted. It's only implied in as much as the truth of the proposition presupposes the fact that such a bird exists. They have to exist for somebody to claim something is an ivory-billed woodpecker. And we find Aquinas indicating that something similar is occurring in demonstrations of the existence of God. Again, the word God is not a proper name like Greg Doolin, but the name of a kind of nature, namely of the divine nature. And what's that? Well, as we've seen, we don't know it, but we can signify what we mean by the name, namely that a haver of divine nature is the sort of thing that 
can be, is, a first uncaused transcendent cause. So whereas you can rightly assert of me that Dr. Doolin is, Greg Doolin is, signifying that I exist because you have firsthand knowledge of my existence, Aquinas indicates that by contrast, when we assert that God is, we're really asserting that something is a God. And doing so according to the truth sense of to be. In short, what we're saying is that it is true that something has the divine nature. And the truth of that statement, of course, presupposes that a God, in fact, exists. But again, God's existence is merely implied or presumed by the statement God is. It's not asserted. To put this in short, Aquinas' position is that through demonstrations, we can come to know the fact that God exists indirectly from his effects, as he indicates in text 17. So I'm getting to the end here. We can sum up Aquinas' line of reasoning, general line of reasoning for each of his five ways and any other of his arguments for the existence of God by showing a sort of meta-argument uh, that they all presume. And I list this at the end in figure five. And the meta-argument, the overarching argument, is as follows. Given that nominal definition of God, a first uncaused transcendent cause is a God. Something is a first uncaused transcendent God, therefore something is a God. Notice the first, or what logicians call the major premise, is that, as I said, nominal definition that Aquinas says, let's agree on that to start. The second, or what logicians call the minor premise, is what each of his arguments is trying to prove. For example, the prime mover in the first way argument, or in the fourth way argument, the maximal being that is the cause of the existence of all other beings. Regardless of the specifics, he's telling us, if by one of these arguments we arrive at a first uncaused transcendent cause, then in that respect, it has been proven that there is a haver of divinity. There is a God. Now, for the person of faith, this approach, as I have described it, might be disappointing if the person were expecting a proof or hoping for a proof that immediately arrives at the one true God of faith. In fact, the language of a God might seem troubling, as though implying that there is or could be more than one. But the believer shouldn't be thrown either by Aquinas' language or his reasoning. Recall again that even though he is simply attempting to prove the existence of a given kind of nature, it will turn out that there can be only one thing with the divine nature because in the end, in principle, there can be only one first uncaused transcendent cause. And let me give you a parallel to compare this to. Consider what occurs in the Catholic Church with the election of a new pope. There's a period during every papal conclave when the Catholic faithful don't know yet whether there is a pope or not. Is there a pope? And then finally, from the central balcony of St. Peter's Basilica, it's announced to the world, Habemos Papam, we have a pope. At that point, the world knows that someone is the pope, but we don't know who. We don't know his proper name. That's because the name pope is a common name. So the pronouncement, we have a pope, does not assert something about any individual as such. 
Nevertheless, it still implies something about an individual because it turns out there can be only one pope. And we find something similar occurring at the conclusion of each of Aquinas's arguments for the existence of God. We now know Aquinas claims that something is a God because we've proven that there must be something that is a first cause. And like the Pope, there can be only one of it. Does this God of philosophical demonstration line up with the one true God of faith? Well, Aquinas will ultimately answer yes, but that it does not belong to the philosopher as such to tell the believer that, hey, this is what you believe in. Because the philosopher considered simply as a philosopher doesn't speak from the vantage point of faith. So in the end, it belongs to the believer to affirm whether any given philosophical demonstration, Aquinas's or otherwise, has concluded to the divinity that he believes in, and if he concludes that it does, to pronounce to his satisfaction, we have a God. Uh, my question um, is about, I guess, Aristotle's method he was saying about a to a God. Yeah. I'm just trying to understand how this is not the same thing as like affirming a consequence, which my understanding isn't always like a true syllogism. Because if we go back to like your example about the beer, like if I take the effect of um, like I, I'm not being buzzed, I drink the beer, I'm not being buzzed. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily, I don't think that necessarily means that the drink is not an alcoholic. It could be also because I had a tolerance to you're right. So we have to correct for the right kind of situation, right? So it's a bit more nuanced. So we have to factor in the relevant things. The minimal point that he's bringing out. Um, and so notice that that proof was actually a negative proof. I was saying what if not, because you can't say what it is. Aristotle gives the example. I'm, I got to remember it correctly. Because, um, you know, the old thing, twinkle, twinkle, little star. And he realized that stars twinkle because they are distant, right? And so what are, the planets are closer, right? So he reasons that because they do not twinkle, they are not distant. The, the fact that they're distant accounts for their twinkling. But you don't want to say, okay, everything that twinkles is distant because there could be atmospheric interference. So he's going the other way around. Maybe, I don't know if that makes sense. And so he's not saying, oh, uh, the stars are far away because they twinkle. Well, there could be other things to account for twinkling. But he is saying, ah, distance is one account for twinkling. The fact that the planets do not twinkle, so we're going with a negative, that, that's an indication that they are not distant. And that's why I went with a negative example there. Um, but, but prescinding from even that, we start with the most kind of basic premise that effects depend on their cause. So part of the reasoning is to say, look, it's got to be, when we're trying to prove that this kind of thing exists, um, it's gotta be some effect that could only be caused by this. It's, I think that's what you're getting at. And so, yes, Aquinas would agree. You know, so in my example, the woodpecker, could we say definitively that, okay, if, if I heard these bird sounds and I saw these nests, then for sure they're ivory-billed woodpeckers. Not necessarily. Someone could go out with a recording and try and trick me and make, <laughs> find in a museum the nests and put them out there and try and trick me. Um, but the fact that 
an effect exists as an effect and it's not self-sufficient points that there must be a cause. And so that's what he's doing. And then we can get into the finer grain details of any one of the proofs and, and show he's going to show why there could be only one, why we can't go back infinitely and why there's got to be a first. And if it's first, it's uncaused. And therefore, we've reached something that is divine. Uh, I understand, and quite frankly, the territory sequence of ways is coming from when you accept that God is not a proper deity because it's a categorization of that worship. He doesn't have some famous state of God. Okay. Not the name But how is that perpetuating the idea that it's a singular entity? Maybe I didn't understand. Isn't that suggest that there could be multiple categories of multiple stuff? Yes, right. Um, what he's trying to ultimately show is that once he's shown that there is the sort of being that is a God, that in principle, there could be only one of it. And the reason why is for it truly to be uncaused, it's entirely self-sufficient. Uh, it doesn't depend on another. There can't be multiplicity of such beings because it's also going to turn out that such a being, I mean, in his deductive process, he's going to show, look, if it's entirely uncaused, it's not dependent, it's self-sufficient, its very essence, therefore, is its existence, because whenever there's a distinction between the nature and the existence of a thing, ultimately the existence comes from a cause. So if its very nature is to exist, there's no composition in it, there's no limitation. What I'm getting at is it's infinite, and there can't be more than one infinite being, because there'd be no way to differentiate them. So. If that's that's what I'm saying. There's a lot of corollaries that one can deduce that are implied by the conclusion of any of the five ways, but we got to tease it out. But the ultimate conclusion will be there could be only one of, if it's truly a first uncaused transcendent cause, there could be only one ever. So my question then is, is why does there have to be a cause? Why does it have to be a cause? Okay, so there's there are certain basic, you know, like when I teach this to my students, we get to this part and we get to Aquinas and arguments for the existence of God. As for any philosophers, there's there's certain starting points and presuppositions, right? I guess I'll stand up. Uh, so, uh, you know, so for Aquinas, you know, if, if you are a, a, a rank skeptic and you say, I can't even trust that there's a world out there, well, you can't begin to construct the proof the way he's doing, right? Uh, he is an Aristotelian. He thinks that the world exists that he exists, that these things are different things in the world, that they present themselves to us through sensory experience, and that gives us some insight into their natures. And he also famously says, there was once a man who studied a single fly his whole life, and he still didn't know everything about it. So he's, on one hand, got robust optimism that we can know things, but on the other, acknowledges the limitations of our knowledge. And so we can get insight into the natures of the things sufficiently to know what they are. When it's something immaterial, we can't know what it is. But he thinks we can prove that it is, given our his basic trust that things exist. We can know them to a degree. We observe that certain things are insufficient to bring about or to change, to undergo changes in certain ways. And so they depend on something for that effect to happen. And if the effect exists, therefore the cause exists. And then he'll proceed in various ways to prove that there's got to be a first cause.
But in the end, yeah, it's going to say, look, all of our language is going to fall short. And so, you know, in the semantics, his use of words, he'll draw a distinction between what he calls concrete words, like the word tree, and abstract words, like describing the whatness of a tree, the treeness of the tree, right? Okay, so the problem with concrete words, if we say a word of God, like God is good. Well, that implies that he's a good thing. And then we've got composition and we're treating him like a material thing. Okay, so let's use an abstract term. God isn't just a good thing. He's goodness itself. But that still doesn't solve the problem because nothing in our experience, is that it, uh, if it's simple like that, it, it doesn't exist as a thing, right? So all of our words are going to have shortcomings. We can try and get around it by saying, he's goodness itself, beingness itself, but we're still naming him from his effects, not from what he is in himself. And so all of our language is going to fall short. And that's, in a way, he's going to say, yeah, in a way, God is unnameable. But in another way, what scripture tells us about him is true, and it's meaningful language, because another axiom he'll use, I have the principle of causality, effects depend on their causes, but every cause, every productive cause, every maker, makes something like itself in some respect. So the effect is like the cause. So from the likenesses in the effects, we can get a little insight into the cause. And then what I alluded to, and you'll see in the text, he gets from this Neoplatonic thinker, Pseudo-Dionysius, called Pseudo because he's not the historical Dionysius of the Acts of the Apostles, but really um, a Syriac monk who appropriated the name. But suffice it to say, Pseudo-Dionysius has this book called On the Divine Names. How do we have meaningful language about our transcendent God? And Aquinas sees in him a, a threefold way of naming God. We get terms that we take from his effects because the effect is like the cause. So that's the way of causality. God is the first um, mover. God is the first efficient cause. But that's not naming what God is in himself. That's naming his effects are related to him, right? Then the other way is, okay, but once we've gotten that part, say, well, it's first, then we can use negative names. He's uncaused. He's not material. He's not composed. But that's telling what he's not, not what he is. It's helpful because it's narrowing the field down, but it's still not being what he is. But then we can go a step further. We can say positive affirmative names, which kind of presuppose those first two ways, and say, well, look, his effects are good. And Aquinas is careful to point out in response to the Jewish philosopher Maimonides, because Maimonides would say, well, when we say God is good, we either mean he's, uh, we mean it metaphorically, or we mean he's not bad. And Aquinas is saying, no, he really is good. His goodness itself in an infinite, simple way, I just don't know what that way is. But I say to my students, you know, what are some good things? My mom, the flag, apple pie, and oh yeah, God. No, God is off the charts. But he's good. And so the point is that that's where the transcendence comes in. Goodness is a perfection found in creatures. The notion of goodness doesn't imply limitation. So God is good, but not like that. Given how closely linked Aquinas has the concept of God's whatness and God's isness. Um, is there a sense in which the five ways work together as almost an extended ontological argument? Some people see it that way. 
Um, I, I'm not convinced of that. Okay. I think they're standalone arguments. Okay. They're kind of sketches. Now, it's interesting, there's a progression in them. And one of the interesting things I didn't bring out is that uh, the first way at the end, he says, and this everyone you know, gets to the prime mover, and this everyone understands to be a god or a god. In the second way, he says, this everyone calls a god. Third way, this everyone calls a god. The fourth and fifth ways, he says, and this we call God. What's going on there? <laughs> is there something, is, it, is he trying to say something like there's, for at least the believing Christian, there's something more sympathetic? It's not that the first three ways arrive at a God that doesn't line up with a Christian God, which mm -hmm. maybe this, there's more given to us in these that we're more sympathetic with, because you give the prime mover argument, yeah. And a lot of people, even if they're willing to accept it, or at least you know temporarily like entertain possibly accepting it, they say there's something really unsatisfying. That doesn't sound like God. He's the first mover. I want more. I want an intelligent God, a loving God, and so forth. But of course, he can go and deduce those from corollaries. Um, but maybe more is given, you know, with that fourth way. I mean, maximal being is the cause of all perfections and all beings, and the existence of all things. The fifth way, it's like governing. So we get providence coming in. I guess I would have one follow up. Yeah. Like you're saying they, they clumped in five different arguments. Yeah. Does that mean that they could possibly be named five different things? Mm -mm. Okay. No, because in the end, we could again show through corollaries that if there truly is a prime mover, and what he means by it, it's a first entirely uncaused cause, it's going to turn out to be, you know, uncaused, so uncomposed, so perfectly simple. And therefore, no limitations, and therefore, infinite. And then the first efficient cause, da -da -da -da, and therefore, infinite. And, da -da -da -da. and so then we find them all converge, and it turns out that what we've treated from different effects to arrive at different names are different names for the one true God. Is this based on this in question one, or is this when he gets to arguing for the genus of the God? Well, it goes through a lot of attributes in between. Uh, so this is actually article uh, question two, where he goes yeah. through God's existence. He goes through a lot of the attributes uh, before he gets to unicity, and so the arguments from unicity presuppose everything that he did for it. But why can there only be one infinite being? Why can't there be two or more infinite beings that two existence Right, so to say that something is infinite is to say that it's unlimited. This being's going to be unlimited in its very existence. So if you've got infinite being A and infinite being B, you would be saying, well, how does A differ from B? Well, A has trait X and B lacks it. So infinite also implies that it's infinitely perfect, I should say. If it's infinitely perfect, it's not lacking anything. So if it's an infinite perfect being, once you've proven that, then you say there, there's no way to distinguish one infinite being from another, it just sort of blurs together. There could be only one. So, yeah, we really need to understand it. Infinite. And so, I should point out for sometimes when we hear infinitude, we think, one might think, infinite in length, infinite in extension, infinite in number. This is not a numerical kind of infinity. It's just meaning because there's no, you know, earlier he's proven there's no composition in God because whatever is, has composition in it is caused, you need a composer to put it together. So if he's uncaused, he's uncomposed, he's simple, 
and therefore he's perfect in himself. But what kind of perfection is it? It's, it's, uh, or what kind of infinitude? It's infinite in perfection. Infinite in the act of existing. He's not an existing, that's why I come back to I am. He's not an existing this or an existing that. He is. And another way, and there can be only one of that. 